Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is Dan Taylor. My name is John Licton. Join us twice a month at the International Schools Podcast as we have conversations with international school leaders, educators, and entrepreneurs working and engaging in the world of international schools and education. And finally, just to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Asa for Education, for making this podcast happen. Now on to the episode. Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your co-host, John Micton. Uh, Dan will, is not with us today, and I am excited because we had the opportunity to speak to Dr. Helen Kelly. I think it's almost a year ago, and Dr. Helen Kelly had done a lot of work during COVID on some surveys. She did one on teachers and one on leaders, and we really delved into the topic of burnout, and she brought a lot of uh, knowledge and information and kind of awareness and maybe some perceptions and understandings that many of us didn't know about burnout. Today we are not going to focus on burnout and really if you're interested in that topic please go to her website or go to the old podcast which you can find and you can unpack that with uh, Dr. Helen Kelly who was so kind to come on. But I'm really excited because uh, Dr. Helen Kelly has just released a book and uh, we get to talk to her about the book, and I think it's a really interesting topic. The book is called School Leaders Matter, and uh, it will be out February 28th, which is just around the corner. And what we're going to do today is kind of talk about not the burnout aspects, but Dr. Helen Kelly really does a lovely job of breaking down some approaches and what schools, governments, and school leaders can do to help address their well-being, uh, stress management, uh, and preventing burnout. And so that's what we get to unpack. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. It's lovely to see you again. And we feel really privileged that we get to talk to you just before the book release. You're the first ones, actually. This is the first podcast that I've done that's only about the book, John. So that's exciting for me as well. <laughs> yeah. So uh, as we said, we talked about burnout and I think, you know, that's something we got to grapple. And thank you for all your insights and knowledge. And I think, you know, there's some really important things that people need to uh, frame as they think about the word burnout. I think there are a lot of misconceptions, but that's not what we're about today. First of all, tell us why did you come up with a book? So you've done research, you do a lot of articles, you work with a lot of schools. And a book is usually quite a big task. So what kind of inspired you and maybe talk to us a bit about the, the process of your book writing and then let's unpack some of the aspects of it. Yeah, well, I think I, I love writing. It's my first passion, actually. So that's a massive advantage. And I think of myself as really um, writing in a journalistic style where I'm trying to uncover injustices and things that people need to pay attention to. And there's only, there's a limit to how much you can do that in a series of articles. There was so much to say. And over the last 10 or 11 years, while I've been operating in the field of school leader wellbeing, um, you know, I've become aware of just what a massive subject it is. And so it was an opportunity to bring it all together in one place. So I approached the publishers and it was very exciting that they were on board with my idea. And, you know, naively, like a lot of people, I think, who are writing a book, um, I said, oh, you could have it in nine months or whatever. And it took, <laughs> it, yeah, it took um, about... 15 or 16 months I think for it to be completely wow. finished um, and I've done almost all of that work in my camper van while I've been traveling around the country and around Europe so it's been a kind of interesting experience um, and then it was submitted to the publishers in about um, October and then it's uh, September and then it's around about a five six month lead time for them to actually get it ready which is also wow. very interesting from the perspective of someone who loves writing and loves reading is to experience that process. You know? I can imagine. Yeah. Now there are a lot of books about leaders and school leaders, organizational development, you know, leadership capacity, being vulnerable. Uh, I, but I think one thing that we don't often hear, and there are a lot of books about well-being and mindfulness, but more in a general term of, you know, for the bigger population and some stuff for teachers and students. But you're really focusing on well-being 
and uh, you know, preventing burnout and having that balanced approach to dealing with a leadership position. Yeah. Was this something that you were like, wow, there's nothing on this? Or you felt that you had an angle that you were bringing that maybe hadn't been addressed? Yeah, I think the second one. I mean, there are only really two other kind of authors in this field. Um, and so it was untapped. But also the approach that I wanted to take, where the first half of the book is really that journalism where I'm drawing attention to the fact that the school leader's role has intensified and become more demanding to a point where it's become unmanageable for, you know, for the majority of people, according to the research, you know, um, and why that's happened and to identify which um, elements of the role um, are bringing the, the strains and demands. And it was really important for me to get that off my chest. And it, it's extremely well researched in the sense that I draw from research papers and studies from all over the world from the last 10, 15 years, an enormous number of research papers. So I just felt it was important to get that out there so that people understand this really is a crisis. It really is something that we need to be concerned about. But also to frame that, the title School Leaders Matter, to help people to understand why it matters. Why should we care? They're just school leaders. And, you know, to, to put forward the case based upon the research as to why it is important that we maximise um, the, the well-being of our school leaders for the benefits of our students, our schools and society because school leaders are effectively nation builders and they play a key role um, in the success of, you know, economies. Um, and so it's actually something that's extremely important, not something that should be minimised. So it was really important for me to get that out. But then also it was obviously important, John, and, the, and of course the publishers were very keen on this, that it would also be a practical handbook that schools and leaders themselves could go to for tools and strategies to help them to improve well-being and manage stress. And so the book then naturally fell into two parts, the bit that I really wanted to write and the bit initially that I wasn't as keen on, but actually over time it's become the second part is driving the work that I'm doing now with schools and with leaders and with individuals through coaching and has actually um, taken on a life of, of its own and become more important than that first part. But I needed to get that first part off my chest, I think. Yeah, and what's interesting is you say, you know, leaders, we need to care about them. And one thing I think often happens to leaders, they're in a position where they have to care for many different uh, stakeholder groups. They have to care for the Absolutely. parent. Of course, at the end of the day, the, you know, to be a little vulgar, the buck stops with them in the sense that there's an issue with a child or maybe a teacher doesn't follow through on things. Everything kind of lands on their desk at the end of the day. And that day usually continues past the time when students and teachers and parents are gone. And I think it's really interesting that you almost are calling out to the general public because you talk about not only uh, national schools, but international schools, yeah. is that empathy and saying, listen, why do you think generally people don't care? Yeah, I, I think it's about educating stakeholders, you know, and the... Um, the framework that I've developed for schools, which is called the School Leader Wellbeing Framework, which is a strategic framework that they can work through um, to improve the well-being of their leaders. The second stage of that is about educating stakeholders. It's about helping people to understand why this is important. This isn't important because school leaders are people and they deserve a life and they deserve to be cared about. It's because it impacts the bottom line. All the research shows that healthy employees are more effective, you know, to put it simply. It's much more complex than that, but to put it simply. And also um, that if, if leaders are able to work at their optimum because they're healthy, then student outcomes will be better and schools will be more effective. And therefore societies, nations will be, be more effective. And so this isn't about, you know, caring about, school leaders as individuals or human beings this is a much much bigger um you know bigger issue 
What's interesting is you kind of talk about this domino effect is, you know, that one impacts the other and it has actually a ripple effect that is far more significant than just the individual. You highlight the idea of, you know, better performance in schools, well-being. If the, the, the leader is in a good mindset and uh, feels balanced and feels valued and can really work a good day and still have some balance, that has that repercussion of going up or down the line, however you want to describe it. And that's something that I think people maybe don't understand. Tell us a bit about that idea that it's more than the person, because what is it that if, if a child or a teacher or a parent sees that kind of leader in that mindset, what, what have you noticed? What, what are the kind of the, the value added proposition that comes about? Well, as I've said, first of all, we need to understand that healthy employees of any kind in any organization um, concentrate better. They have more energy. They make better decisions. Um, even before we start talking about recruitment and retention crisis, which, you know, we don't tend to have so much in international schools, but world, worldwide, the OECD has acknowledged that there is a worldwide crisis of recruitment and retention. Um, but even if we ignore that, and I'll maybe come on to that in a, in a moment, what we know, in addition to being better at your job, performing more highly if you are healthy, we also know um, that actually there are a couple of other ways in which the well-being of the school leader impacts on everyone else in the school. Um, first of all, we know that when leaders are stressed, they're more likely to have uncivil interactions with stakeholders, usually staff, but sometimes parents. And that impacts the quality of the workplace culture, which in turn impacts the quality of the school culture. So what we're aiming for is to have positive relationships, which are established through trust. And trust is established through civil interactions. And when leaders are stressed, they're less likely to be able to have those. We also know that there's something called contagion, emotional contagion theory which is, and you know, you've probably heard of this, our emotions are contagious. Our, you know, our, our, our demeanor on any given day is contagious to those around us. But what we also know is that for leaders, their emotions are more contagious to, for their followers than peer to peer. Wow. So if a leader is coming into school and they are stressed, they are you know, hassled, they're not at their best, they're exhausted, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're cynical, whatever, you know, all those things we talked about in the conversation about burnout, that's more likely to transfer to the staff around them, which in turn is more likely to transfer to students. Um, and then, of course, we've got modelling as well, haven't we? You know, leaders are role models. And if we can establish a work-life balance and show others what that can look like, it gives permission for other people, to, for others, like, you know, the staff to do the same. And then we're starting to impact on teacher well-being, which we know impacts on students considerably. Yeah, um, yeah. So you're right, it is a domino effect and, and it isn't something that we're just um, wondering might happen. There's hard evidence, there's hard research to show that these things are real. And I assume when you're working and you work with a lot of schools, is, is do you, are people self-reflective enough to be aware of that? Or is it sometimes you just have to say, hey, by the way, I want to tell you something. You guys are, you know, you're not noticing this, but this is what's happening. I'm curious, you know, is it sometimes people have the capacity to self-reflect, but they don't have the capacity to act on it? Um, I don't think that many people understand the relationships that I've just outlined to you between between leader well-being, teacher well-being, student well-being, student outcomes, school effectiveness. And it's interesting when I deliver workshops to SLTs, um, it is a little bit like the scales have fallen from their eyes by the end of a two or three hour session with me. And some of the things they say make me feel so, um, you know, warm and fuzzy inside because, you know, I'll ask them, well, what are the biggest takeaways? And they'll say things like, well, we've realized from this session that actually um, looking after school leader well-being isn't undermining the purpose of the school, but it's actually supporting the core purpose of the school. 
Is um, there a perception that it is undermining? So there must be that perception that leadership well-being is actually a negative. Uh, the same with teacher well-being. I think there's this idea that if we attend to well-being, what we're doing is encouraging people to work less. We're giving people a free pass to work less hard. And if people oh. work less hard, then ultimately we're not going to achieve our goals as a school and the school will be less effective. When, in fact, the research shows that the opposite is true, you know, not just in schools, but in all organisations, um, you know. Where and does that come people... from, Helen? Where does that come from, this kind of understanding? That just seems, you know, counterintuitive. Yeah, that's the 20th and 21st century disease, though, isn't it? Where we worship work, you know, and it's, it comes from that this idea that in order to be successful at anything we have to work ourselves into the ground and that's permeated all aspects of 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 life and organization and society um and we think that that's how we get things done when actually we're starting to understand especially post-pandemic um as we move through the 21st century that actually we can't just keep working ourselves and others in the ground and expect our um, organizations and our um, societies to continue to be as effective as they were because people in all walks of life are burning out and dropping yeah. out you Absolutely. know I mean look in the UK we've got a crisis at the moment of people over 50 having retired early and don't want to come back into the workplace wow in your book you uh, one of the things that you described and that I, is really interesting is that you actually then break it down about giving strategies. You call it preventing burnout, managing stress, improving. And you really uh, look at different stakeholders. The first one, of course, is uh, governments. Yeah. And maybe talk a bit about that, because I think that's interesting. You know, for many international schools, that would not work. But no, it, it, it's important because very likely some things that governments could do might be transferable to schools. And also, you know, if you go straight into talking about schools, then a lot of communities that I serve are going to come back and say, well, that's not fair. You're putting the onus on us. What about governments? So I think it was really necessary. And I think that there are a, a whole number of points. And, you know, this was part of the part of the process of me getting this off my chest because it needs to be said. Um, it, you know, first of all, it's about understanding why the school leader's role has become so demanding and the way that the school leader's role has intensified over the last 50 years because the role of schools has changed considerably and there's been a much greater emphasis upon school improvement. But also at the same time, there's been what we call school-based management where schools, um, you know, in the public sector are no longer run directly by local authorities, but by schools themselves. And as a result of that, we now have high stakes accountability to government. Um, and so that's brought, um, you know, also a lot of um, stress related issues. But then we also have, you know, because the role of schools has changed and broadened and the role of leaders is intensifying because of that, um, we also have situations where sorry john i've lost my thread and i don't do that no, very often no, <laughs> to edit that no, this is a great conversation lose your thread yeah yeah, yeah no 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 i'll be back with you in a minute yes so um the school leader's role is no longer just uh, like a building manager like it used to be or an administrator you know that we still use that term administrator in american schools yeah um, or, or, or the lead teacher like it used to be in the uk the school uh -huh. leader's role now is massive they're like a ceo and so actually what's expected of them is much more than was expected of them in the past also what governments now expect is that schools are going to be the ones that that fill that um achievement gap so schools are now responsible for making up for disadvantage and deprivation that's caused primarily by poverty rather than government policy. And, you know, that might, might be me getting on my soapbox a bit, but there's a so lot Helen, of... If I can stop you on that, because I think yeah. that's a very important point, especially in saying that in the 50 years there's been this big transition. Uh, so actually, in some ways, schools become a type of social service on Absolutely. top of an educational institution. Absolutely. They're now not re just responsible for educating students. And re you remember as well, 50 years ago, we had this idea that uh, jobs were different than 50 years ago. 
you know, and, and the 50 years before that, there were a lot of uh, more labouring jobs that um, we didn't have to educate all children to a high standard. They could go out into the workforce and there were things for them to do. And around 50 years ago, after the war, you know, early 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, we started getting a lot more competition in the Western world from Eastern countries. And we realized that we needed to buck up our ideas and educate our, our population to a higher standard. And, um, you know, that the, the whole kind of paradigm around education shifted as a result of that. Um, so, first of all, we schools are under pressure now to educate everyone to a high standard. And that's where school improvement comes in and all the research coming out of universities where every year we've got new things that we should be trying. But also what we had at the same time was a breakdown in the way that society had operated before, because we had a lot more women in the workplace we also have um, a lot more divorce and uh, a lot more people moving around the country. And so we had that breakdown of the social system um, that, you know, we, it takes a village to raise a child and the breakdown of the village, if you like. And so not only were schools now having to educate their students to a higher standard, but they were also having to fill the gap you know, of, 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 fam of fam that families did before and communities and neighbours. Um, and then what we've also moved into, and especially now, you know, in the UK, we've got a real economic crisis on our hands, is a situation where schools were also responsible for not only providing before and after school care, but for feeding students yeah. and you know, all kinds of things. And so what schools take on now is massive compared to what they were doing in the late 1960s when I was in, well, I was in primary school, um, the very late 1960s. <laughs> um, prim what primary schools are doing now, you know, and secondary schools, it, it, it's night and day. And so the, the role of the school leader has just changed beyond, you know, it, it belief. But then what we've also got is during this time an understanding through research of, um, how important school leadership is to school effectiveness. So not only is the school leader's role is kind of grown, uh, expanded and intensified, but also now we have all these sets of leadership standards that leaders have to come up to because we understand that actually leadership, the quality of leadership is the second most important school-based factor that determines student achievement after wow. factors that are after teacher quality and yeah. factors relating to the classroom, you That's know. Fascinating. So if so, you bring all those factors together, it's a huge kind of thing, you know. The analogy of the CEO is a great one because it's kind of you can imagine. And and the thing is that most school leaders don't have 25 people under them that are sub managers, exactly. you know. Exactly. Often in some situations in smaller schools, your school leader is doing everything, you know, yeah. Is, yeah. The, is the budget person, might be even the IT person, might be the social counselor. So yeah. would you say, because you do a lot of work both in the public sector and the private sector, and I'm going to really focus on international schools because both yes. of us have uh, backgrounds in that. Would you say there are a lot of parallels that you've noticed from the public sector that you're describing in the United Kingdom that I think is parallel in many other economic uh, countries like the United States, Canada, Australia, and those kind of places and around the world generally. But yeah. in international schools, have you seen that same pattern? Are there the same variables in play or are there some nuances? I think that the, the same variables are in place, um, but there are some nuances. I mean, obviously, in international schools, we deal with poverty and disadvantage much less. Um, and so that's a, a main difference. You know, in your question about what can governments do, the first one is, is actually putting in place effective policies to address inequality and disadvantage. And the OECD, again, have done some amazing work around this um, and reviewing education funding. Um, but then a lot of the other things that governments can do are things that schools can do as well, you know. So th those are the two big ones that really um, signal the difference between what we see in public schools in the UK, the US, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, um, and what we're seeing in international schools um, where the, 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 the uh, inequality and disadvantage that comes from poverty is not such an issue that we're dealing with. And also education funding coming directly from the government is not something that we're dealing with either. 
Yeah. And I think that even goes globally. If you look at Asian countries and in Africa and South America, this whole talk about education and burnout and leadership, you see that permeate through many different cultural contexts, which is really interesting because there's this common thread that we see. So in your work with uh, international schools, I assume when you're engaging, uh, you're engaging with leadership teams and boards are you uh, so what what are you getting them to understand what are some of like the big ahas that you want them to walk away so you sense that they're going to action something that will make a difference yeah well first, i think the main one is that if you're att attending to well-being of leaders or teachers or staff generally has to be a strategic approach if it's going to be meaningful um and effective it can't just be a tick box and so, so I'm understanding by you saying that, that generally when you look at well-being in schools, it's maybe, uh, you know, crackers and cheese and some white wine at a staff meeting and maybe a half afternoon off on a Friday as a, that, that's often what, you know, people perceive and maybe wrongly and maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but I'm hearing you're saying, no, hold on. This has to be part of your strategic plan. It has to be embedded intrinsically in the workflows of your day. Absolutely. And the way that we go about doing that, and as I said in my book, I, I've developed a, a, a strategic framework called the School Leader Wellbeing Framework, but that frame, frame, same framework can be used to support other staff. You know, we need to go through these stages in order to be mo more strategic. Um, so the first one is it's about being collaborative. So well-being can't be effective if it's something that that someone does to someone else. It has to be something that we do together. So in the same way that leadership cannot do well-being to staff, it won't work. Um, governors or um, head teachers with large SLTs or whatever can't just do or give well-being to their leadership team. It needs to be a collaborative process. So it's about forming a well-being team or a, a steering group or something like that so that everything goes through them. And then the next stage is, as I've already mentioned, so I won't talk about this for long, but it's about educating stakeholders so that everyone understands why this is important and that this is a foundation for that we build upon for staff well-being and for student well-being and the impact student outcomes and school effectiveness. And then the next stage, which is the big one, really, John, is about what I call gaining insights, which is really about collecting data, because there is no one size fits all approach to well-being. And if we're going to try to address well-being of our leaders in schools, we need to find out what the issues are. And we talked a lot last time about the six areas of work life that cause burnout. Exactly. Um, you know, so we need to find out what's going on in our school. And I've de developed and give, give with the book um, the first of its kind, I believe, um, a school leader well-being survey um, that schools can use to gather data. But there are lots of other ways of gathering data, focus groups, check-ins, formal and informal, looking at HR data. You know, so we're gathering data so that we can identify what the themes are in our school and what needs to be addressed. And then once we've done that, then we move on to things that are more familiar to us. We're going to set priorities and goals. What can we change? And then we're going to develop and implement interventions. And those would, and there are a couple of chapters in the book about interventions uh, three chapters. One is around interventions for workload reduction. One is about building community. And the other one is about providing support for school leaders. And of course, when we've done all that, the final stage is that we evaluate what we've done and we track progress. Um, so it's a whole strategic uh, framework. And, you know, it's essential to do it this way if you want to get the most out of the money that you're going to spend and the time that you're going to put in. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is you're really highlighting how uh, it really has to be thoughtful and you have to be really systematic about it. It's a, You're putting in a system. It's not just talking about it, but it's actually putting in structures, workflows, actions and outcomes, and then an evaluation. It's like a design thinking cycle, but using well-being as the topic. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. I just want to remind our audience that it's episode 73 
uh, is the one where Helen talked about burnout because you just talked about it. So I want to make sure people go back. So Helen, when you talk to people and you, and you share this, you're telling them, okay, this is the homework. This is what you're going to have to engage with. Often what I've seen in my experience as leader, people say, yeah, that's really important. And then uh, assessment comes by or there's a bus strike or there's something else. And suddenly that gets shifted. What do you do to highlight the importance of sticking to it and being systematic, not short term, but really bringing that long term into the DNA of the school? Yeah, I think it's just going back to the benefits and reminding people of what they are, you know, and that this is something this this is something that can have a real impact and is just as important. Um, you know, most of the things that are in our strategic plan um, in schools is is really all serving the ultimate goal, which is improving student outcomes. And I use that word outcomes widely. I don't just mean academic achievement. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just keep that we need to keep coming back to, you know, students are at the heart of this. And if we focus and attend, focus on and attend to this, that, you know, it will have the same, it, it will have a similar impact on student outcomes. So we keep coming back. But we also have to remember that, you know, we have to be realistic. We work in busy schools and things do come that kind of knock us off course sometimes. And if that happens, then, you know, we just we just come back. We just come back, you know, but it's about having that's why it's important to lay those foundations by having a steering committee, um, especially if you've got let's say if you've got a large organization, you're a group of schools that, that has, let's say, 10 schools around the, the country, the world, sorry. And each school has a senior leadership team of, let's say, 10 people. So you're talking about 100 individuals. This is why it's important that we have a a steering committee or well-being team of some kind that that has representation from all of those stakeholder groups within the SLT. Um, and, you know, bold schools can even bring staff and parents onto their school leader well-being steering committee. That's or, great. you know, even better, the school leader well-being aspect of it becomes a sub-strategy of the well-being strategy for ah. the whole staff. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then, you know, it's more joined up thinking. Um, and then, of course, next stage is that, it be, that staff well-being is a sub strategy of a strategy that's for whole school well-being that includes students. And, you know, that's the best way. And, and that's lovely the way you describe these subsets. It's really getting to the whole community, because in your book, you actually have a. Uh, a chapter about what schools can do to building community, because I assume that uh, that action, that that process is really key to this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I talked about these stages of the strategic approach and I talked about the interventions, you know, and we're going to um, develop interventions based on the goals that are based upon what we found out that our leaders need but what we know John from our last conversation around burnout is that the single um, most significant factor that causes burnout in school leaders is in, an imbalance in community where they're having um, conf uh, conflict in relationships with staff and parents they're not receiving support they're feeling isolated and lonely and this for school leaders is actually more significant than workload whereas workload is more significant for teachers That's so really building yeah so building community is probably going to be a part of your interventions in any school and actually almost an enormous amount of the work that I'm doing in schools at the moment is around this. So schools oh. are really starting to open their eyes and see how the quality of the workplace culture is impacting um, the, the, the quality of the workplace, the quality of the work. Um, and so it's really about in order to improve the well-being of the leader, we're improving the workplace culture for everyone. Because if we improve the workplace culture and everyone's happier, then the situation is going to be easier for the school leader to, to lead and manage. So it's about creating a sense of belonging for everyone. It's about creating a sense of shared purpose through those shared values. It's about building positive relationships through trust, and fostering workplace civility. And I do a lot of work with schools around that. Um, and it's, it, it, you know, it's really 
taking that whole staff approach to building a positive workplace culture is going to ultimately benefit staff and then it will benefit leaders because relationships will be more harmonious. Yeah, and um, this again is a great example as you describe the different steps to building that community and its impact is again that idea of the domino effect, that ripple, that if you yeah. engage with these, then there's a wider benefit that sometimes might not be uh, visible or might you might not be aware of it, but intrinsically or maybe even there's just a vibe. And I'm sounding very 60s here. No, uh, you're absolutely right. And the research shows that it's about the mi those micro moments, the, the small things that happen. But, you know, other, the corporate world is well ahead of this game. You know, you think about all the work that Microsoft and Google were doing kind of 20 years ago, 25 years ago when they burst onto the scene. And, you know, we all thought that was a bit woohoo and kind of, you know, <laughs> Jobs and his mates were all old hippies. And, you know, but actually the, the, that the corporate world has really taken that on board and they're so ahead of the game on this. And the truth is that while it might be, um, hard to see and pinpoint there are a whole range of tools that are used by the corporate world to enable us to measure and evaluate these things that seem to be quite nebulous but actually can be made quite concrete um, so it's actually less woohoo and you know woo-woo and nebulous than you think because of all the wonderful work that's been going on um, you know in workplace psychology um, over the last 20, 30 years, um, primarily through big organizations. And I think what you're saying, which is really important, is if you have some tangible evidence that, you know, through data, and we talked about data, and you yeah. highlighted how important it is to get that data, creating culture surveys, that very likely then gives more, uh, I would say, impact and also kind of motivation for people saying, okay, maybe I don't see it, but the survey results or the data that we're getting is showing evidence there is that improvement. Yeah, so that's and really people, interesting. People feel it as well, John. I did a session um, the end of last year with a school in London and I only went in for one session and the other sessions are later in the school year. And then lo and behold, two weeks later, they had Ofsted and it was even brought up by the staff to Ofsted and mentioned by Ofsted that the staff felt that they cared about more. It made them feel cared for that someone like me was brought into school to work with them on improving the culture That's of the great. workplace. Yeah. You know, That's fantastic. You also, so you do chapters on uh, stress, workload, but there's one that really sticks out for me is the self-sabotage. <laughs> I knew you'd yeah, say that. You're laughing, but you know, I mean, the stress thing. I'm not trying to say that there's no stress or the workload, but these are th the, the, that term of self sabotage really resonates as like, whoa, red flag, what's going on? And I, if we have a few minutes, I'd love to hear your thoughts yep. and why did you do a chapter on that? So we have workload, stress, and then self sabotage. So it seems like there's some relationship between the three. Well, I think what I'm trying to do is say, you know, this is what governments can do and this is what schools can do. And that's the majority of it, because what we know from our last conversation is all the research shows that burnout, um, you know, or moving along that burnout continuum. Remember, you don't have to have burnt out, but you're moving along it is actually primarily a condition of the workplace. And it is caused primarily by contextual and situational factors to do with the workplace. It is not the failing of the individual. However, it's important to be taken seriously, to have credibility, that I acknowledge, um, firstly, what school leaders can do to support their own well-being and manage stress, but also what role um, they may play in um, making themselves more vulnerable to this happening to them. And, you know, self-sabotage behaviours are a well-known, you know, in psychology. Um, and what I've done is identify 10 self-sabotage behaviours in school leaders. And I've used this framework with hundreds of school leaders around the world. And it's interesting, you know, sometimes in group sessions and sometimes quite often in one-to-one -one coaching. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that of the 10, everyone can always identify at least three but some people can identify as many as seven or eight of them in themselves. 
And those self-sabotage behaviors, and I might not be able to remember all 10 off the top of my head, but I'll give you a flavor. Yeah, um, yeah so ones that come up very commonly, um, imposter syndrome, very common. about that. So um, when someone feels that they have got the job um, by, by tricking people and actually they're not really good enough for it and that they're going to be oh. found out. And this is very common among school leaders, but many, many people that I coach experience this. It's more common with women and it's more common with people from minority groups. And um, what the research shows is that when we experience imposter syndrome, we work harder in order to make up for it. And as a result, we can make ourselves uh, expose ourselves to vulnerability, to burnout, because we're trying to prove ourselves and we're afraid of being caught out or found out. Um, so that's one. Um, another which makes you work too hard is, and I was one of these, is a validation seeker. So you're, you know, and many of these things, John, not the imposter syndrome so much, but many of the others I'm going to mention are what we would think of as being desirable leadership behaviours but they can tip over into becoming unhealthy. And okay. so it's important that we understand that. Um, so, so seeking validation from our work too much um, so that we're constantly seeking higher qualifications, constantly trying to put ourselves out there on the scene, uh, presenting at conferences and that kind of stuff. And I was guilty of that, you know, and not leaving enough left in the, in the tank. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's quite common. We also have people pleaser, which is very common. People don't like to, who don't like to say no, and they take on more and more and more and more. Um, and then there are a couple of styles of leadership, which I think are interesting because they're the opposite styles, but both of them can make themselves vulnerable to, uh, to burnout. The first one is servant leader. And I was definitely that. So the servant leader abnegates their own needs to those of their community. And, you know, you can see there's an, an overlap there between that and people pleaser. There is an overlap with some of these things. Yeah. But then we've also got hero leader. So hero leader is much more your old fashioned charismatic leader who swoops in and thinks it's their responsibility to solve all the problems themselves. And, you know, they're not very collaborative and um, they take on too much. You know, so there are 10 of those behaviors altogether for people to reflect on. And what we know from psychology is that many of these behaviors are rooted in childhood experiences and so what I'm trying to do in the chapter and what I do in my workshops when when we look more closely at this and in my coaching sessions you know and I'm not a psychologist or a therapist <laughs> but I try to provide this as a self-reflection tool for individuals mm -hmm. to be able to go away and reflect upon some of their own behaviors and how they might be bordering on the unhealthy and may tip them over into a, a, you know, a burnout situation when added to all of the other things, yeah. things that, that are happening. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that this on its own causes burnout. Burnout is on the whole not a failing of the individual and I can't impress upon you enough how important it is that people understand that. Yeah, so what's interesting is because some of the, uh, that, that list that you shared, you taught and you, you preface it by saying some of these dispositions are actually things that we want in a leader, yeah. but then there's that tipping point. And one thing that I would like to kind of hear your thoughts on, as a leader, people usually come to your office or in the corridor, wherever you are, and they provide you with problems. They have an issue, they have a problem. And they usually leave that problem with you and walk away expecting miracles. And I'm wondering is if part of the work that you do, is it trying to shift people from a way of accepting always getting the problems, but maybe engaging them and having them take ownership of the, of the problem solving and the leader being more a mentor, more as a sounding board? I think that we've got a great model to draw on, John, with our experience in IB schools here, because we have a much more collaborative environment and collaboration is at the core of what happens in IB schools. And so I think when you have a genuine, I'm not saying that you don't still have staff come to you with problems, but when you've got a genuine collaborative environment where people solve problems and make decisions together, rather than just be consulted or have a lower level of participation, then I think you've got a better chance of that happening. But most of the schools that I work with don't, you know, especially schools in the UK, 
they're, they don't understand that level of collaboration that I'm used to from working in IB schools. It's still very top down. So there's um, a hierarchy. That very much so, very much so. Um, and, and, you know, I trained in that and my first jobs in international schools were, was in that system, but I moved over into a more collaborative environment. I got my fingers burned when I was a leader first in the IB because it wasn't what I was used to. But over the years, I came to see how wonderful it was. And actually, um, in the workload, reducing workload chapter of the book, I talk about um, dispersing leadership more and building a more collaborative environment um, is one of the ways that we can do that. And of course, if we build a more collaborative environment, it also improves the quality of the workplace culture. So, it, you know, it has a double benefit. And that's what's so fascinating about everything that you're sharing today is these, there's this connection between all these different components. None stands alone as no. an entity to its own that you can put a bandage or you go and solve that. It's a bit like, you know, the pegs that keep coming up and you use a hammer and you think if you hit one, but it's really almost like it's an organic uh, situation where all these different variables, all these different components have to be addressed and have to be addressed in a very open-minded and collaborative environment where there's transparency, there is the capacity to self-reflect and also to take on board maybe some things that you or as an organization have been ignoring. Absolutely. And, you know, we're coming back to understanding that about students, aren't we? And yeah. so it's the same about adults. You know, we've gone down a kind of pathway for too long where it's just about academic achievement and we've kind of, you know, put things into boxes. And now we realise that actually for students, it works better if it's organic, if we're attending to students' pastoral needs, if we're attending to their well-being, supporting their sense of belonging in the school, all of those things that I've talked about in relation to the adults, that actually the outcomes for students will be better. And it's exactly the same for the adults in the building, for the leaders, for the teachers and in international schools for the parents, too. Yeah. And that's that's a huge uh, that's a huge community and uh, stakeholder group, especially if in different countries where maybe there is not your local community, you don't have your family and some language barriers, cultural barriers that this amplifies that sense of wanting to connect to the community. Helen, when you talked at the beginning, and I'm just thinking we're talking about burnout and workload. So you're continuing to do workshops and you're writing a book at the same time. <laughs> Talk a bit about how you balance that. And, you know, as you're writing, you obviously have some ideas, you have some concepts, you have, you know, and you said you wanted to get some things off your chest. And then you go to a workshop or you go to school and you're suddenly think, oh, I have to go back and change that again. At what point did you say, I'm not changing anything. We're going to stick with it, even though I'm experiencing or seeing new things. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the time pressure of, you know, I'm already four months late with this and it needs to be done. And honestly, I'm sure every author of fiction or nonfiction would probably say the same thing. There are things now that I would go back and change, you know, absolutely. Um, but I think that you also have to be realistic. Uh, you know, I think as well, I don't see this as my only opportunity. Um, what I'm doing now, um, a lot of the, my time is being spent on developing um, a workshop for school leaders that goes side by side with the book. That oh, helps nice. them. Yeah, that's a more practical approach to building on the ideas in the book with some more practical tools so that they can actually have... Um, a plan that they come away with and some strategies that are personal to them. Um, and so all the things that I didn't have time to put in the book, I'm now able to put into the workshop and also um, developing a, um, a self-facilitated um, online course. I'm not sure how long it's going to be before that comes out, but certainly the workshops will be ready to go probably next month. Um, and, and so it, it's great because it gives me the opportunity to fill the gaps and also to apply learning that I've, um, I've had the, you know, luxury of, um, having access to since I finished writing the book, because I'm innately curious and this never stops for me. I'm always finding out new things. And so workshops are, are not permanent, are they? They can change. Exactly, um, yeah. And so I'm developing two workshops at the moment. One is called Making Your Leadership Sustainable, 
or sustain, uh, sustaining your leadership. I think we've uh -huh. changed it. Sustaining your leadership. Uh -huh. And that's for school leaders to attend. Okay. Um, and then this, the next one will be called, um, now I'm, I'm trying to remember what the title is, but it's making leadership, uh, making well-being strategic or being strategic about well-being, something okay. like that. And that's going to be much more focused upon um, staff well-being. And okay. so, yeah, developing those things gives me the opportunity to include the things that I didn't get the chance to include in the book. Yeah, and I think your point's an important one. Usually, you know, workshops are very, you know, you can kind of uh, tweak them and move them as you do one workshop with a group of people, then you learn from that and then you amplify it or enhance it or even, you know, recalibrate. And I think what's nice about that uh, strategy that you're having is there's the book that people can read. I want to remind people it's February 28th. It'll be at your yep. favorite bookstore. And then there's, of course, the workshops and then the self-paced online course, which I think is really interesting. So it gives different venues for people to uh, engage with this. Yeah, absolutely. And it appeals to different learning styles. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've, you know, you were talking about the design thinking model, you know, and I, I've done training with Susie Wise from the Stanford D School. And uh -huh. I remember how that begins with empathy, you know. Yeah. So I've gone to school, my school leader community out there, and I have a, a 13,000 followers on LinkedIn now. So I have a good pool of people to tap into and said, you That's know, great. what would you like? And what I've learned is that people want different things. And so what you've got to try, try and do, is provide a range of platforms and and you know ways in which people can learn about this so that they can all tap into it because primarily I'm driven by wanting to help people and I want people to benefit from all of my learning to help you know improve their own well-being and make their lives you know nicer <laughs> yeah, absolutely Helen thank you and just before we leave I'm just curious you know 2023 is is looking uh, nobody's really sure what's going to end up. And we have a lot of different things happening that are challenging and also exciting. I'm just wondering if you have any just little grain of advice as we close up, something that you want people to think about as they reflect about this conversation. And then again, I want to remind people, episode 20, uh, 73 is where Helen talks about burnout and definitely worthwhile listening because it builds on this conversation in her book that is coming out February 28th, uh, School Leaders Matter. So just, I don't know if you just have something, a reflection point that you would like people just to reflect upon as we wrap up today. Yeah, I think it really comes back to the title of my book. It's that school leader, leaders really do matter. And by putting your own needs first and attending to your own needs, you have nothing to feel guilty about. Um, you know, acknowledging your vulnerability to burnout doesn't mean that it's a personal failing to have moved along that burnout continuum um, and that there are things that can be done to improve the situation. And that ultimately, if you don't care enough about yourself to want to do this, um, you, you know, your staff and students will benefit. Um, so do it for them, if not for yourself. Absolutely. Thank you. And this idea of self-care, the self-care has a ripple effect on everybody. And I think that's such a powerful message you've shared with us. Helen, thank you so much. Uh, it's great to connect with you and also to see that you have your book out and definitely encourage people to connect with you on LinkedIn uh, and also uh, look at the book if you're interested. And also if you're interested about burnout episode 73. Helen, thank you so much. and look forward Always to a pleasure, John. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Thank you.